It's official. You know what? First service, they always fellowship after worship. It's like they're going on and on and on. And you guys have always been kind of, okay, we're done. Let's get in the Word. This morning, you've changed that. You guys fellowship more than, than uh, first service. So that's all good, though. And that's why we're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're starting a new book this morning. I'm excited about it. Uh, turn in your Bibles to First John. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Greg's up and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Just keep your hand up high and so we can see and he'll get it right to your seat. <laughs> First John, it's right after Second Peter, which is right after James, which is right after Hebrews, which is yeah, Second Peter is right after First Peter, and First John is right before Second John. Well, we're a sharp church this morning, aren't we? <laughs> Let me say this, if you've not studied this book before, you are absolutely going to fall in love with it. I mean, it speaks so powerfully and so straightforwardly as where we are and where we need to be with the Lord. I'm excited to start to study the book of First John. So First John, chapter 1, we're going to look at the first four verses this morning. We read, that which was in the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy May be full. The title of my study this morning is Joy and Fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, to be in your word, knowing that you are here in our midst, and that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. We thank you for the awesome time of worship, Lord, and just opening up our hearts in praise to you now. And, and Lord, we just continue to worship you through the study of your word. And we, Lord, we ask that you'd bless our time together. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to make a commitment to, to you, they're not born again, they don't have their sin forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today and they would see their need for you and they would be born again this morning. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I read a story about a pastor who loved to golf. And one Sunday morning, it was just such a gorgeous day outside. The sun was out, the sky was blue, and he thought, you know, I don't want to preach today. I mean, I want to golf. So he called up one of his associate pastors and said, you know, I'm not feeling so well. I got an upset stomach, and I was wondering if you would take the service today and preach, and I'm just going to stay at home and rest. Well, the associate agreed. I mean, yeah, the senior pastor then hung up the phone and, and said, all right, and got out his golf clubs. He locked, you know, loaded them up in his car, and he drove off to a golf course some 40 miles away because, he, after all, he didn't want to get caught from someone in the church, you know, because he's playing hooky. So there he is. He's getting his clubs out, and he's teeing up the ball. Meanwhile, up in heaven, God is watching. And an angel is sitting next to the Lord. and saying, Lord, 
I can't believe that you'd let the, that preacher do that. This is Sunday morning. He needs to be preaching. Why are you allowing this? And God says, now don't worry about it. And the angel said, are you going to let him get away with this? And the Lord said, just watch. Then the pastor went to hit the ball. I mean, it went straight towards the pin, dropping just short of it. Then it rolled and fell right into the hole. A 320-yard hole in one. The angel was astonished. He looked at the Lord and said, why did you let him do that? To which the Lord smiled and said, who on earth is he going to tell? Sadly, there are those that say, oh, I don't need to go to church. That church, it's just a man-made institution. I, I, you know, I can have church at home. I'll, I'll go online. I'll just listen to a, a sermon online. Listen, one of the greatest things that we have going for us besides our relationship with God is our relationship with one another. And one of the main themes that we're going to come across again and again in the book of First John is the idea of relationships, of fellowship. In fact, John writes in verse 3 here that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I like the way the writer of Hebrew puts it in Hebrews 10.24. He says, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. I like the way the New Living Translation puts that same verse. Think of ways to encourage one another to outbursts of love and good deeds. Let's encourage our meeting together and warn each other, especially now that the day of the Lord is getting close. See, it's so important that we have fellowship together, that we meet together on a regular basis. To neglect that fellowship in our life is a real indicator of where we're at spiritually. I mean, show me a person who's, who's strong in the faith, uh, and, and I'll show you a person that loves being in, in church. They love gathering together with God's people. They love to worship the Lord. They love, love to hear the Word of God taught and preached. They love it. They can't get enough of it. Show me a person who's bored by it, that makes up excuses as why they, they, don't want, they don't want to go, and I'll show you a person who's having a spiritual breakdown. There's some things going on in, the, in their life that's not good. See, being in fellowship, is, is a part of, of proof that you really are a child of God. And this brings us to John's letter. First John is a very, very powerful epistle written by a very, very old apostle. Along with the rest of the Jesus' disciples, with the exception of Judas, John was sentenced to a martyr's death. But unlike the other disciples, even after being placed in a cauldron of boiling oil, God prevented John from becoming a French fry and, and then banished him seemingly to this you know, God-forsaken island of Patmos. Uh, But still, John lived a a very long and full life, so full, in fact, that he was probably close to 100 years old when he wrote this epistle. And according to historians, John lived out his life, the remainder of his life, in Ephesus. John was about 100 years of age, would would then be taken from church to church throughout the region of Asia Minor, or what is present-day Turkey, just to go and visit the other churches there, because they wanted to hear what he had to say. And upon his arrival, they would gather with full anticipation. And after all, John was the last surviving member of the band of 12 men, you know, that was handpicked by Jesus. Surely he would have these incredible, you know, memories to share with them, insights to encourage them by. And yet time after time, place after place, John would stand to his feet, look at the, at the assembled congregation and simply utter one sentence. Little children love one another. 
love one another. I mean, that should come as no surprise to us because John was known as the apostle of love, referring often to himself in the gospel account as to the disciple Jesus loved. Now, is that because John saw himself as this, you know, Jesus loves me more than the rest of you guys? I don't think so. I believe it was because John was so amazed that Jesus would love someone like him. After all, remember it was John and his brother James that said, Lord, let's call fire down from heaven and blast these guys over here. Because a certain of these guys, you know, region in Samaria failed to respond to the ministry of Jesus the way that they thought they should. I mean, evidently, John, this one-time son of thunder, was a highly flammable hothead, you know. But something happened to him. See, as he spent time with Jesus, he became more like Jesus. And the same thing happens to you and to me. Slowly but surely, as we hang out with the Lord, as we spend time with the Lord, as we hang out with God's people, we become more and more like the Lord. So, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, number one, the purpose. Number two, the proclamation. And number three, the product. Number one, let's begin with the purpose. Again, the whole purpose of John writing the letter was to bring you into this relationship with God. It, it has the idea of having a relationship with one another, but more importantly, your relationship with God. But there's also another purpose that John wrote this epistle. It was to combat the false teaching that was going on at that time. Because when you have false teaching, and you have false doctrine in the church, it affects everything to do with, with our relationship and our fellowship with God, and our relationship and our fellowship with one another. Now in John's day, these false teachers were known as Gnostics, spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, from the word gnosis, which means knowledge or to know. Gnosticism means we have the knowledge, we, we know and we know more than you. We have more knowledge than you. These are the guys John is refuting in his, his epistle. They consider themselves the, the super-duper saints, knowing more than anybody else. Now, the opposite of Gnostic is agnostic. Just add an A right before the G, and, and yeah, maybe you've heard that term before. The agnostic, it's just the opposite. They say, I don't know. I don't know. The agnostic would say, I don't know if there's a God. There's something I just don't know. I like what Charles Spurgeon used to say. He said that agnostic is but the Greek word for the Latin ignoramus. So one might say, I don't believe the Bible because I'm an ignoramus. <laughs> but the opposite of agnostic is gnostic. I know. And the Gnostics were destroying the fellowship people were having with each other and destroying the fellowship people were having with God. In fact, history tells us that one of these false teachers during John's time was a man named Serinthus. And he taught that Jesus was just a mere man like you or like me, not God. He taught that Christ's consciousness came upon Jesus at his baptism and it left right before they nailed Jesus to the cross. Basically, that Jesus was only the Messiah from the time he was baptized until the time he was ready to hang him on the cross. That's what this false teacher taught. So obviously, John is button heads with these guys, I mean, even violently, because he's this false, false teacher. In fact, there's a story that was passed down through the ages about this. Remember in those days, they didn't have, you didn't have your, you know, your ensuite in your home with the bathroom and the shower and all that stuff. And you had to go to a bathhouse. Well, the story goes that, that John and some of his disciples that walked with John, were heading towards the bathhouse, got word that one of them, one of these false teachers, was in that bathhouse already. So John the Apostle, upon hearing that, as, as old as he was, 
pulled up his robe and began to run away, literally running away from the bathhouse. Not because he was afraid, but because he said that there is no way I will enter into that place with that teacher in it because he was afraid that the, the walls might collapse in on him. That's how serious he took false teachers. But, you know, I think today that we don't take it as seriously as John did. I think that we don't take it as seriously as Peter did. Listen to Peter's words in Second Peter 2, 1-4. In the New Living Translation, he says, But there are also false prophets in Israel. This is there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach their destructive heresies about God and even turn against their master who bought them. Theirs will be a swift and terrible end. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of them, Christ in his true way will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago and their destruction is on the way. See, Peter knew that after his departure, these false teachers were going to come in and, and try to seek and destroy the work of God and make money from this. And, 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 and what makes this so harmful is that Peter says many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. I mean, these false teachers are loose with the truth, loose with their morals. So Peter prophesied that due to their loose, loose lifestyles, false teachers would give really uh, a black eye to the Christian community. And the sad thing Today, that most churches have gotten used to it. You know, they've known, they've thrown doctrine and truth out the window and they've replaced it with this seeker-friendly, well, let's not offend anyone theology. And they've allowed all sorts of false teaching to come within the church and false practices to come into the church. And then they expect the congregations to simply go along with it. I like what Pastor Chuck had said years ago. The trouble is, if people want to swim through the sewer with their mouth open, that's their business. But what they want me to do afterwards, what, what they want to do afterwards is to get out and shake it all over me, and that makes it my business. See, that's the problem. Because a false teaching not only affects your relationship with God, but it affects our relationship with each other. Now, for this guy, Serenthus, to teach that Jesus just had a Christ consciousness, you think, okay, well, that stuff died long ago when Serenthus died. But listen, the New Age movement teaches the same thing today. That Christ is not a person, it's a consciousness, and that the Christ consciousness comes upon beings and they are called Christ beings. The New Age movement today teaches that Christ consciousness came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him when they hung him on the cross. Now here's what's ironic. They think that they have this New Age way of thinking. That it's brand new. It's not new. It's the same old lie repackaged to look new. It's Gnosticism. It's an old saying, you may have heard it, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. These Gnostics were claiming they have a new revelation, a new understanding, and they would say, hey, they are now in the know. You don't know, but I know. And you need to know, because I know. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. There are times where these self-proclaimed Christians will say the same thing, especially when they come to new believers. And they may say, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you got a Bible and, and I'm glad you're growing and, and, and you, have, you have a little bit of knowledge, but let me tell you what you don't know that you need to know that I know. And they come knocking at your door. Hey, I have this Awake magazine for you, you know. Uh, this New World Translation that you need to read because I know what you don't know and the Jehovah Witness will hand you know the, the, their, their tracts and stuff. 
Are you going to knock on the door? Well, we have more knowledge than you. And the reason we go door to door is because we have another New Testament of Jesus Christ, the Mormons will tell you. We have knowledge. Listen, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know about God, about Jesus Christ, is found in the pages of His Word. You don't need anything new. You're complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now let me say this. If you want a little insight into combating these cults that do come knocking at your door, it's really just three simple things to remember. Number one, know the history of the Bible, where we got our Bible. Number two, be able to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And finally, number three, show that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And, and, and three reasons why I say that. Because, first of all, the question the Bible in which we use, Number two, that they'll deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And number three, they'll admit that they're going door to door in their works to try and make it to heaven. I heard this statistic quoted recently. I'm not sure of the accuracy of it, but the statistic said that 80% of the people that are pulled into various cult groups like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons or others were once a part of some Bible-believing church. Uh, the statistic is not necessarily saying they were, they were believers. It's saying that these people had some church invo- involvement at some point in their life. And if that statistic is true, it's alarming. It says that there are people who could have spent time in church, maybe even a lot of time, but they don't have their doctrine in order. And someone comes knocking at the door and they invite them in. And they're deceived and they're pulled into that. And the next thing they know, they're being led down that wrong road. And sadly, there are people today who will set aside biblical teaching. And they'll say, well, I just want to experience God. I don't want to argue over doctrine. I just want to love Jesus. That's a sweet sentiment. sentiment. But it's also a very dangerous one. Because you might end up loving the wrong Jesus. You might end up believing the wrong doctrine and end up way off course. You know, it's like, like this. If you know anything about flying and GPS... If you leave Los Angeles and you're going to Hawaii, if you're only off by one degree, one simple degree, over that few thousand miles, you're going to miss the island by uh, well over 300 miles. That's a long way to swim if you run out of gas. But you're off just that tiny bit you're off. Now listen, if you didn't know this, when you left L.A. airport, no one would care if the pilot said, oh, we're just off one degree. Oh, no big deal, it's just one degree, what's that? It's huge. It's huge. Bottom line is, knowing that now, you wouldn't want on that plane. The same way there are those who say, oh, I pretty much know God's Word. I mean, I might be off, off here or there. If you are, if we are, if all of us are, when you get to where you're heading, you're going to miss it by too far to correct. That's why the Bible exhorts us over and over again to have our, our life and our doctrine in order. First Timothy 4.16 Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine continue in them for doing so you will both save yourself and those who hear you. So here John is coming against these false teachings that have come into the church. How do we come against the false teaching that comes, in, comes today? By knowing God's word. Knowing what it teaches. By knowing the truth. Jesus prayed in John 17.17 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
I'm sure you've heard this illustration. I've used it before. How banks used to uh, train their tellers to, to spot counterfeit money. They would give them the real thing to handle over and over and over again so that when they finally a counterfeit bill came along, they would go, man, I can, this isn't right. This is wrong. And the same thing is true for us. The more we know of God's word, the easier it is to spot the counterfeits. And I have to say, I'm amazed at all the false teaching that has come into the churches today. And added to the fact that outside of the church, I've never seen a greater biblical illiteracy among Christians than I'm seeing right now. I'm amazed at how many believers are lacking in the very basics of Christian theology. Hosea's cry for his day rings true to ours when he said, My people are perishing for lack of knowledge. C.S. Lewis gave this warning years ago, If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. Oh, how we need the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to get in the Word of God and then hold each other accountable to the Word of God. What's being taught? What's being preached? Charles Spurgeon, I found this quote. It's kind of long, so I actually put it up there on the screen. or It's going to be up there on the screen, but it's a great quote. Let me read it to you. He writes this. Even though it be an error that is in an evangelical church, yet we must smite it. I love those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, but nevertheless, I cannot have any truce, any treaty with diverse errors that have crept into the church, nor would I have you regard them with complacency. We are one in Christ. Let us be friends with one another, but let us never be friends with one another's error. If I be wrong, rebuke me sternly. I can bear it and bear it cheerfully. And if ye be wrong, expect the like measures from me and neither peace nor parley with your mistakes. Let us all be true to one another and true to Christ. And as soon as we perceive an error, though it be but as the shadow of one, let us root it out and drive it from us, lest it plague the whole, it plague the whole body and put leprosy into the entire fabric of the church. Powerful. These false teachers were creeping in and destroying the relationship and the fellowship, leading people astray. John's purpose, writing this epistle, was to refute it. Now this brings us to our second point, the proclamation, and it actually brings us back to the Word of God and verse 1. You guys are going, when are we going to get to it? We're here now. Look at verse 1. John writes, That which was in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. Now, this begins to make sense when you get the background that we've looked at. Remember, John's purpose of this letter is to bring you into that relationship with God. And John brings us to the center of the relationship, Jesus Christ. But that I mean, you don't read John going, Dear church, you know, starting his letter that way, or to those in Corinth, here's a letter for you. No, John just gets, I mean, he's an old guy. He doesn't have time to mess around. Okay, he's just right to the point. Jesus is the word of life. And again, he's refuting these false teachers that was going on saying, you know, the saying, you know, Jesus really wasn't who he says he was. John is saying this, I was a witness. I was there. I saw the whole thing. It's kind of like this, when a car accident happens, and you have all sorts of bystanders saying what they think happened. Well, I think this car was, was coming from this angle. And I think, well, it must have been going really fast because it ended up over there. John comes on the scene and says, wait a minute. You guys think you know, but you don't know. You have no idea. I was there. I was in the car. I know how, how it went down. Here's how it happened. And then he begins by proclaiming this. Look at this. He says, that which was from the beginning. John says, let's start from the beginning. Here's what we know. Now, the beginning that John writes of is not the beginning of this world. It's not the beginning of creation. It's the beginning recorded in Genesis 1.1. It's the beginning recorded in John 1.1. 1, 1. 
the beginning there was before there was anything, when all there was this was God. The beginning of Genesis 1-1 is very simple. I love it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis, or rather, John 1-1 is, is quite profound. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John goes on in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John is going all the way back to eternity's past to proclaim, hey, Jesus was there. He was there all along. This is huge. What John is saying that is this eternal God became accessible to man in the most basic way that, that anyone could relate to. He became a man, God became a man, and dwelt among us. It wasn't some Christ consciousness or some phantom spirit being that was here for a moment and gone. And he says in verse 1, We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. See, he's, he's debunking the false teaching of the Gnostics right away. You know, there are those in the Gnosticism, they say, well, he really, Jesus really wasn't a physical man, but some kind of pseudo-physical phantom. I heard him. I saw him. I studied him. I touched him. He's the word of life. Now, you might want to underline that phrase, the word of life. That word for word is the same word that John uses in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It's the word, it's the Greek word, logos. And it's as John is saying that the, the logos of life, the word of life, is God himself manifested in his son, Jesus Christ. See, it's clearly proclaiming the deity of Jesus Christ. John says, we've heard him, we've seen him, we've studied him, we've touched him. Let us tell you about him. And he goes on, look at verse 2. He says, the life was manifested. Again, he says, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That phrase, the life was manifested, he's saying that the life was brought out in the open where men can see it. Again, John is talking about the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying to us the second time that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. It's interesting that John now calls Jesus eternal life. Doesn't that make sense? If you want a, a definition of eternal life, it's a person. And that person is Christ. You either have Christ or you don't have Christ. You either have eternal life with Christ or you don't. You either trust Christ or you don't trust Christ. John is going to make that abundantly clear in 1 John, 1, uh, 1 John 5, 11 and 12 when he says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty simple. You know, you want to live in heaven for eternity. You want to be with God when you, when you die then you have to have the Son. If you don't have the Son, then you, then you don't have eternal life with God. Period. Very clear. That's John's message. Now, understand that this message that John received was not only for him, but it was for the whole world. John was to give this message to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I say that because here's a striking contrast between the Gnostics and the disciples. Gnostics, man, they wanted to establish this, this, this group, this fellowship of the intellectually elite. You know, we have to know, we're just going to all gather together. Whereas the apostles, they're attempting to proclaim to the whole world what they had received. 
That's what a false teacher will do. You know, a cult they'll do. Let's gather as many people to ourselves. Whereas the true, true disciple, they'll want to go out and point people to Jesus Christ. That's right. For a third time, John there says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Man, three times he's saying that. So it should be penetrating our consciousness by now. John, why are you repeating this over and over and over again? Three times. Because he wants us to understand. He's saying, I was an eyewitness. My testimony is true. That which we have seen, he says. That word for seen means to become acquainted with by experience. To experience. He's saying, I experienced Jesus. I lived with Jesus. You know, we, we spent three years together. We slept where he slept. We ate where he ate. You know, we've seen the miracles he's performed, feeding the 5,000, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, the deaf they could hear. John says, I was there. We experienced living with Jesus. Then he says, that which we have heard. That word heard means to perceive by the ear what is announced in one's presence. We heard Jesus speak to us. We heard him on the Sermon on the Mount. We heard him teaching us studies after studies, teaching us his word. Then John says, we declare to you. Declare means to proclaim, to make known openly. We're letting you know what Jesus said openly, unashamedly. Letting you know how much He loves you, how much He loves us by going to the cross and dying for our sins. Now, can we and should we should be able to say the same thing as believers? That we've seen, that we've heard, that we declare. You know, that we've seen, we've, we're acquainted with the experience of Jesus Christ. We've come to experience His love and His grace in our lives, that we've heard, we've heard him speak to our hearts through the study of his word, then we should declare, we should proclaim and make known openly. This brings us to our final point, the product, what that will produce in our lives. When we hear, when we know, when we declare, it's all about Jesus. Then we have fellowship. Then we have relationship. See, knowing Jesus produces fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and with each other. Look back at verse 3 and on into verse 4. And we'll close with this, these two verses. It says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Two reasons John says we should hear and we should see and we should declare. Number one, that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two, that your joy may be full. Fellowship and joy. Understand our sins have separated us from God. The whole reason Christ came to this world was to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. To restore that fellowship that Adam and Eve once enjoyed in that garden before they sinned against God. See, because of our sin... We cannot have fellowship with the Holy God. Therefore, we need a mediator. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. And now, we have access to the Father through what Jesus Christ did upon the cross by taking upon Himself our sins and our guilt and our shame. We have fellowship with the Father through the Son. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. See, John is saying, yes, there is salvation that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But understand, there's also fellowship that we have that's been restored with God. Relationship means that all that God has is potentially yours. But fellowship means that we can actually draw upon and experience His resources. That Greek word for fellowship is also the word for communion. It's, it's an odd word. You've heard it before. It's the word koinonia. 
It means having in common or sharing with. See, Christian fellowship means sharing the things of Christ. And to do this, we must know the Lord Jesus. Not only know about Him, but know Him as a personal Savior. See, I think in, in our time, in our day, I think we, we've lost the meaning of the word fellowship. I think the Christian idea of fellowship has turned into, uh, you know, let's have a potluck, let's eat lots of food, we'll talk to each other about everything under the sun, except the one thing that really gives us true fellowship. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, fellowship for the believer means that we meet and we share and we talk together the things of Christ. Man, we open up His Word and we share verses with each other. We talk about Jesus and His Word. That's the kind of a fellowship that John is speaking of here when he said in verse 3 that you have fellowship with us. And he says that truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's having that right relationship with God. Then we can have that fellowship with each other. When the, when the vertical is right with God, no matter what comes your way, you'll be able to handle the horizontal. If you have fellowship with God going on, the reading of His Word, praying, if that fellowship is going on, then and only then, true fellowship horizontally can we have with each other. And I would say this, if I'm not able to have fellowship with a, further, a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, then I would seriously be looking at my life and seeing, am I spending time in fellowship with the Father? Spending time with Him. Let me ask you, have you ever not been in the Word and someone comes up to you and shares something that something amazing that God has showed them and, and you go, wow, that's pretty cool. And you got nothing to share in return. Uh, uh, well, I don't, I don't, you know, that's pretty great for you. Uh, there's no fellowship one with another if you don't have first fellowship with God. See, those of us as believers, we need to take the words of John seriously. He says, the purpose of this great plan of God is for the revelation of himself to men and for men to have fellowship with one another. But see, how can you have the fellowship on the horizontal level if the vertical isn't right? It can't happen. We must maintain that relationship with God so that we can have that horizontal fellowship with one another. Then the second and final thing that John says, and the reason they've seen, heard, and declared, verse 4, that these things we write to you that your joy may be full. I, I like that. Peter kind of wrote a similar thing in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, You love Him even though you've never seen Him. Though you do not see Him, you trust Him. And even now you are happy with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Now that doesn't mean that you're a Christian now. You're going to walk around every day with a smile on your face and smiling and clapping. Oh, you know, people, why are you smiling? Oh, because I'm a Christian and I got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where down in my heart? I'm so very happy, so very happy. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that no matter what we face as believers, what tragedy comes our way, God will give you exactly what we need to get through it and to get through it with joy. And how wonderful to have joy. Not just a little joy, but a whole lot of joy because we're experiencing that fellowship. Why? Because we know Christ. We truly know Jesus. The purpose of John's epistle that you and I might share together these wonderful things of Christ and that the Spirit of God might make the Lord Jesus and the Father real to us in such a way that our fellowship will be sweet. As we close this morning, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I can tell you, you're missing out on joy. You're missing out on all that God has in store for you. See, Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago to give His life for ours, to save us. Why? Because the Bible says we've broken God's laws. 
The Bible says, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you put your faith and trust in Him, if you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ, He will forgive you of your sin. He'll take the guilt away. And in its place, He'll not only give you eternal life in heaven, He'll save you from hell, but He's going to give you joy, inexpressible joy, knowing that you're with Jesus. But you must take that step yourself. You must take that first step and say, I want to put my faith and trust in you. I want to have that, that relationship with you restored. I want to come to you. I, I want my sin forgiven. And if that's your desire this morning, as we close, I want to give you that opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and our hearts and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for how clear John gives to us what he saw, what he heard, what he declares. Lord, it's all about you. Lord, God, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But not only that, to rise again from the dead. So that if we turn from our sin and we turn and we put our faith and trust in you, you will forgive us of all of our sin. And we thank you for that, God. And I thank you that as believers here this morning, we have the hope of heaven. We have that joy. But Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has not come to that place in their lives, have not surrendered their hearts to you, they don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, I pray, Father, that you would touch their hearts this morning and they would see their need for you and they would turn to you today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning? You want your sin forgiven. You want to be born again. You want to have this relationship with God that we've been talking about today. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. God bless you. I see your hand. God bless you. Anybody else? Just raise your hand so I can see it. God loves you so much. He has a desire just, just to be with you. In fact, Jesus said this in John six thirty seven: All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. See, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned, how many times you've blown it. Jesus says, you've come to me, and I will not cast you away. I will forgive you of your sins, but you've got to make that step. His word says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and sup with him. But you've got to open that door. Anybody else? In these last few moments, just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning. God bless you in the back. Anybody else? God bless. For those that have raised their hand, I want you just to read. Pray this prayer. It's just a prayer of committing your life to Jesus Christ. Just repeat it after me. Even if you didn't raise your hand, but you want to give your life to Christ, this is just a simple prayer of faith. Repeat after me. God, I'm sorry for my sin, and I repent of it. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for every sin I ever committed. Jesus, come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I'm now going to heaven. Thank you that I am now a child of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. As soon as we're done, in just a moment, come up to talk to me. You either raise your hand. Uh, you talk to me. Talk to Greg. Uh, Greg, raise your hand right there and back there. 
talk to Greg right there. He'll be up front. He's one of the elders. Uh, and would love to give you a Bible and help you know what it means to follow the Lord in your walk with the Lord. Don't leave without letting us talk to you, please. Well, let's all stand. We'll do one last song together.